NBA on NBC. What's up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to Pot of Fame, the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not you're going to call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're talking about former MOB pitcher Rick Rushell and whether or not he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame and joining us in just a moment to discuss Rushell's career and Hall of Fame candidacy is none other than the director of product at Sports Reference, Adam Dorarski. Before we bring Adam on, let's talk a little more about Rushell, or as he was known when he played in the majors, Big Daddy. So he played quite quite a long time ago. You know, he came up uh, in 1972 and had a 19-year career uh, in the majors, going all the way until 1991, where he finished up his career with the San Francisco Giants. Um, and over the course of his career, uh, mainly with the Cubs, 12 years with the Cubs, five years with the Giants, then he had three years with Pittsburgh and one with the Yankees, uh, he won 214 games. He's 92nd all-time in wins. He also put up a three... 0.37 ERA. He had 2,015 strikeouts, 102 complete games, and 26 shutouts. He also led the NL in complete games and shutouts in 1987. He was a three-time All-Star and a two-time Gold Glover, and he never won a Cy Young, but he was top three in Cy Young votes in the NL twice. The big thing with Russell, and, and again, Adam and I go into this quite a bit in the pod, so I won't spend too much time here, but He's a, he's a sabermetric guy. He's a war guy. Um, he has a 68.1 career war uh, as a pitcher. That's good for 37th all-time, all-time in MLB history. The only pitchers ahead of him in war are Roger Clemens, Kevin Brown, Kurt Schilling. If you go all the way back to the 1800s, Jim McCormick. So it's Clemens and Brown. We know they're tied to roids. Kurt Schilling's just... Kurt Schilling, I think we all have our views on him and maybe why he's not in. And then the guy from the 1800s, everyone else is in the Hall of Fame. So when it comes to war, Russia passes that test with flying colors. But then it comes around to everything else with the rest of his career. You know, 214 wins, is that enough? Uh, you know, he never won a Cy Young, never got second, only two top three finishes. Is that enough? Three all-star games, is that enough? So it's this kind of sabermetrics versus traditional kind of accolades that kind of back and forth we go we go through when we're talking about Russell's case. Uh, but you know it, it's it's a very interesting player to tackle because you got one side in the sabermetrics community. It's like, hey, this guy should definitely be in the Hall of Fame, and then a more traditional voter that doesn't like to look at advanced analytics. Well, maybe he doesn't have that great of a Hall of Fame case. Now he was on the ballot back in 1997. Okay, he fell off after one year. He only got two votes, 0.4% of the vote back in 1997. Uh, so not great. But since then, obviously, sabermetrics have come to view. And now you look at his career through a slightly different lens. And that's why we're here today, to examine it through this kind of, you know, more recent lens of advanced analytics, advanced metrics. And again, whether or not he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame is something Adam and I are going to debate today. So those are kind of the quick facts on Rick Rushell. With that, let's bring on Adam. All right. So I'd like to welcome back to the podcast one of our favorite guests, the director of product at Sports Reference, Adam Dorowski. Adam, welcome back. How have you been? I have been well. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, always love coming back on this show. Of course. So we are recording. It is, uh, it's baseball opening Eve. It's, it's March 29th. Baseball begins tomorrow. I know I am super excited. My Cubs play uh, tomorrow afternoon, right outside my house, about 60 yards. So I'll be able to hear the roar of the crowd as we, we probably lose the home opener, but that's all right. Baseball is back. Adam, I've never asked what, what is your, do you have a hometown team? Do you, Oh boy. Um, it was the Red Sox for the longest time. I mean, 2004 was just about the greatest thing that ever happened to me from, from a sports perspective. Over time, I have uh, let go uh, of, of individual sports fandom and just kind of embraced the history of the game and just kind of baseball as, as a whole. 
uh, as we were talking about before we hit the record button, you know, I loved the the world baseball classic, like international baseball, all like the weird quirky stuff, uh, you know, the so much like we talked about Minnie Minoso and his path. Like I love stories like that. So uh, yeah, no, no current team. I just love, you know, following the game in, in general, but uh, yeah, we get another quirky one today. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's probably good for your personal health, not to have a rooting interest mm-hmm. in, in the baseball team. Cause as a Cubs fan, that usually means it's going to be a pretty rough summer for me. Hopefully this year's a little different, but today we are talking about actually a former Cub, which gets me very excited. He played for a host of other teams as well, but I would say his prime was mostly with the Cubs, some pretty poor Cubs team, but with the Cubs nonetheless. And that is the great Rick Rushell, Big Daddy himself. We are talking about his career and Hall of Fame candidacy today. Um, he, is, of course, is going to be a senior committee uh, type candidate if he were to ever get in. Um, we were just talking about before, you know, which era does he fit in with how it is today? He would be on the classic baseball air ballot, which would be the class of 2025 is when they'd be voting. So it wouldn't be next class, but the following class. Um, Rick was on the ballot back in 1997. Uh, he was only on the ballot one year. He received 0.4% of the vote in 1997. Same amount of votes as the great Mike Scott and Gary Templeton got that year. Um, would love to know who those voters were, Adam. Um, would love to talk to them and see what they were thinking back then because that was obviously not the popular choice. And to be honest, Adam, I'd have to go back through everyone. I'd be curious. Maybe Gene only got – you and I talked about Gene Tennis earlier this year. I think he might have only got 0.2% of the vote. I was thinking, is this the least we've ever had of talking about a candidate? However – as we're talking about today, Adam, if we're looking at advanced metrics, you know, Rick has a very good case for the Hall of Fame. And honestly, we just look at his career in general, very underrated, you know, looking from a lens of today, I think his career is a lot more appreciated. But as we always do on this show, Adam, we're going to talk about, you know, does he have a case for the Hall of Fame? And do we think he should be in the Hall of Fame? I'm super excited for today. The first question I'll ask, you know what's coming here, but when you think of Rick Rushill, what's the first thing that's come to your mind? Uh, I can't wait for the answer here, too. The first thing that comes to mind is, well, last time I was on, we did Gene Tennis, and the theme was that Gene Tennis was the hipster candidate that you could tell how clued into uh, advanced metrics or bought into, I should say, sabermetrics were uh, based on their opinion of Gene Tennis. Well, if we were making an all-hipster candidate lineup, Rick Russell is the one looking into Gene Tennis, taking the signs and throwing the pitches. So it's it's just that he is a, a war uh, machine and he's a hipster candidate. And yeah, it's all about sabermetrics here. There's there's no other way around it for me, I think. Yeah, this is, you know, if you're listening today, I know my listeners, some of you, you live by war, you live by advanced metrics. And that's how you honestly, you know, through any lens, you're looking at a candidate. That's what you're looking through. And there's a lot of people that hate it and don't want anything to do with it. And it's all eye test or it's all just strictly by standard numbers. Um, as you said, as you said, Adam, you know, if you're looking by advanced metrics, Rick, I don't want to say he's a home run case, but like, honestly, if you're just looking at war, I mean, he's 37th all time uh, for, as a pitcher in war in MLB in, in major league baseball history. 68.1 war as a pitcher, you know, picked up another half, about a, another half a war, I guess, or 1.5 if you consider batting, which he was pretty good with 69.5 career war. But if you're looking at just pitchers, only three people ahead of him that aren't in the Hall of Fame today, and that is Roger Clemens, and we know why he is on the outside looking in. That is Kevin Brown, who, again, is tied to the Mitchell Report. I think that has a big, you know, to-do about whether he should be or not. And then you have to go all the way back to Jim McCormick, who is also not in, but I believe he's eight, he's eighteen hundreds, right? He's not even nineteen hundreds. That's an eighteen hundreds candidate there, right? Uh, well, we also got to consider uh, Kurt Schilling too. I'm not sure oh, exactly Kurt- which which flavor of war you're looking at, but uh, yeah, he's he's uh, around eighty there. So gotcha. Still, Schilling just is the four well. pitchers. Yes, so four pitchers. Forgot Schilling, and he's his. He we're just saying he's his own category. Maybe why he's not in. <laughs> But again, from that standard, everyone else ahead of him is in. And when you look at the names behind him, 
there's some very surprising names. So I'm sure we're going to all of that a little later. Um, for me, when I think of him, though, again, I'm a Cubs guy. He is, you know, I don't consider Cubs history having the best pitchers ever. You know, when I think of the best Cubs pitchers, I immediately go to Fergie Jenkins. Um, you have to go all the way back to like Three Finger Brown. Um, those are the type of guys you're thinking of. We've had some very injury prone pitchers where we have, we're really excited, like the Kerry Woods, the Mark Priors, and they just really never turn out uh, the way we want them to. Jake Arietta got us very excited a few years ago, but of course, those are, you know, Jake Arietta is not going to be in the Hall of Fame anytime soon. But if you look at Cubs history, and again, if we're on this advanced metric track, it's pretty crazy. By advanced metrics, Chicago Cubs have been around well over 100 years. Everyone knows the curse, all that stuff. He's the 10th highest war of any Chicago Cub all time. That's positional players, that's pitchers. And that's a very rich history. Second highest by a pitcher, Fergie Jenkins, right ahead of him. He's better than, you know, Tinker, Evers, DeChance, all three of them. Three Finger Brown, Mark Grace, Rizzo. If you're talking Cubs and you're just looking at advanced metrics, you're talking about Rajo being one of the best ever. And again, I think if you ask the standard fan, he would not be in their top 10. But when you're looking at advanced metrics, which again is the case here, that's where he's falling in. And again, you will see a couple uniforms in a Wrigley field anytime with Rajo. But it's again, not a guy everyone talks about. It's I have a bunch of family friends that are Cubs fans. He's not someone we're always talking about. And I think a big reason why is because when he played for the Cubs, very forgettable teams, teams we don't really want to remember. Yeah, uh, he had a lot of 500 records uh, with great seasons, just that type of pitcher where, yeah, I, there's there's so many different ways that we can take this. And I'm really excited to chat about him because Russell is a candidate who has a very high war. We've talked about that. And uh, 10 years ago, I started digging into how is it possible that Rick Rushell has such a high war total? And like the first thing you, you do is you realize we are talking about a pitcher with 214 wins and a 3.37 ERA here. Yeah. Like, I think people forget about like just how good he was, you know, pitchers with 3,500 innings don't grow on trees as well. So you do, you have those numbers over such a long uh, body of work. It's going to add up, but we're going to find out that Rick Rushell, it seems like every adjustment that war makes aids him. And it's, there's for many, many reasons uh, why this is, and I'm excited to talk about it. All right. So let's go to our, our next segment here. We call this that memorable moment. I'm curious what you dug up here, but again, for maybe first time listeners or people not familiar with the program, what we try to do here is we look at a player's career and, and, and we're very liberal here. It can be a specific game, a stretch of a season, a playoff appearance. It could be an entire season if you really want it to. But what we're trying to pinpoint is, you know, what's the most memorable moment of this player's career? Uh, what's on his Hall of Fame reel? What are we talking about when we're keying in on what makes this player great? Adam, for you, what would you consider Rick's most memorable moment? <laughs> Uh, Rick's most memorable moment is probably different than how I would answer for the most memorable moment of Rick's career. Uh, so I have a couple, again, quirky choices here for, okay. for days. One of them is July 11th, 1989. Russell is starting the all-star game for the national league. That's a pretty big achievement. Uh, so a fellow named Bo Jackson leads off the top of the first against him and immediately goes yard. And it is the, the the biggest news, like the world stopped. Bo Jackson led off with a home run. And then Wade Boggs follows him up with a home run. Ronald Reagan is in the booth. They're talking about it. Uh, and then uh, in, in true Russell fashion, three ground outs uh, and a ground ball single uh, by Julio Franco was all that was left in the inning. The inning is over. And what happens? The Bo Nose ad premieres. And Bo Jackson mania takes over the entire world. And Rick Russell was the, <laughs> the pitcher who uh, introduced a lot of people to Bo Jackson that day. Now, is that a highlight of, Bo, of uh, Rick Russell's career? Not really. So I have another one here. August 21st, 1975, Russell starts against Andy Messersmith of the Dodgers, goes six and a third innings, allows five hits, no runs, a walk. He doesn't strike anybody out. Uh, a fellow by the name of 
Paul Russell comes in in relief and finishes the game, two and two thirds innings, a hit, no runs. And they became the first pair of brothers to combine for a shutout. Really interesting moment. It led to a, a, a cool card in the 1976 top set that shows the two of them together. They look like these, these big farm boys and they actually uh, uh, switched the names by accident. <laughs> but, you know, is that the most memorable moment for his pitching? Well, I mean, he was part of a shutout, so that's pretty cool. So I guess the boring answer is his uh, number one uh, war leading season, 9.5 war in 1977 is the boring answer. Just a great season by him. And uh, yeah, I think that's what I got. <laughs> so a couple notes. One, I want, I feel, unless I missed it, Adam, and maybe I did, but I think you failed to mention that 1989, when he's starting the All-Star game, he's 40 years old. Mm-hmm. He's 40, he's a 40-year-old pitcher pitching for San Francisco that year, goes 17-8 with a 2.94 ERA at 40. I mean, this is a guy who played, you know, began his career in the 70s and pitched all the way, you know, through the 91 season. And, and because of the pitcher he was, again, this he was not throwing heat. He had a nice sinker. He hit, you know, good accuracy. He put the ball in play all the time. But the thing that's interesting about when you were talking about, you know, the back-to-back home runs, all of this, the thing that's curious is he was a guy who didn't, like, notoriously didn't give up home runs, right? Like, mm-hmm. when you look at his numbers, I, I believe, I got it right here, 221 home runs over his entire career, he didn't give up the long ball. And that was something like he was someone who gave up plenty of hits. And if he had a great defense behind him, I think his numbers would even be better. He didn't. But he got the ball in play all the time, but he didn't let home runs yet in this all-star game. He's letting up back to back. And again, memorable moments. People do remember him for this. And I think he could be remembered. Oh yeah, that guy gave up home runs, but he, it was like the opposite of basically his entire career. So I wanted to call that out. And then to your point, what I had written down was the 1977 season. I had your boring one down where he finished third in Cy Young that year is his only 21 season. And that war, that 9.5 war, I, I feel like you undersold it a little bit because if you look historically, I, I guess you're thinking today, like people listening is 9.5 is, is that good? Um, I believe it's almost double the the war of who won the Cy Young that year. But if you're looking historically, um, since you know integration, since 1947, the major leagues were integrated. That's the 31st highest war season ever. Uh, it's tied with Jacob Degrom's 2018 season. If you want to just look back a few years at how great that was, um, and and like if you're looking at when he played from 1972 to 1991. That's the 13th highest war a pitcher had during that time frame. Mm-hmm. So, so I just like, it's one of the, like what I feel like hurts. There's a lot of things that I think hurt his case and why people overlook him. But I think people go to, you know, he never had, his peak was never that great, right? He, he never won a Cy Young. His black ink's very low. He, you know, he led the league in losses one year, but never in wins or ERA or anything like that. But that, 1977 season was one of the better pitching performances over the 20 or so years he was playing in major league baseball. I think it just gets overlooked because again, he's not leading the league in anything. He's third and Cy Young. But again, if you look at war, if war was, you know, around back then, he easily wins the Cy Young that war to year that, right? I mean, if this happened this year, right, Adam, if all that happened this year in 2020, the 2022 season last year, I guess, let's say, is he a runaway Cy Young candidate or winner, I guess, with the numbers he had compared to everybody else? With the numbers he had, of course, because, you know, he had 252 <laughs> innings pitched, um, which which helps uh, accrue a lot of value. But he just didn't allow home runs. He led the league in in lowest home runs per nine that year. And it was just, you know, like you said before, emblematic of his career on the 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 lack of home runs. So since integration, the only pitcher with 3000 innings who has allowed home runs at a lower rate is Nolan Ryan. And it's like a 10th of a run, a uh, 10th of a home run per nine innings. It's 0.5 to 0.6. If you lower that to like 2,500 innings, just Steve Rogers uh, creeps ahead of him there. So like, you got to like drop him by a thousand innings to have anybody, but Nolan Ryan pass him in the, in the uh, fewest home runs per nine innings, which is, you know, this is 1947 to today, yeah. which is remarkable. 
uh, he just did not allow home runs. He did put the ball in play and he, he, we're going to talk about how that, how that bit him, but the, you know, the FIP was always good. Uh, I think for the course of his career, his FIP was like on par with like Tom Seaver, but you know, he, nobody thinks of him that way. Yeah. And, and then just to round out that, you know, 1977 season before we move on, he, he goes 20 and 10 that year, eight complete games, four shutouts, 252 innings pitched, 166 strikeouts, and a 158 ERA plus, um, which again, not leading the league in anything that year, but, you know, as a whole, one of the better seasons of like a 20 year span of baseball there that again, I think it's overlooked unless you're looking at advanced metrics, which we're going to be talking about today a lot, but let's move on to one of my favorite segments. And I'm very curious you came up with here and that is and twins. And what we do here is we look at Cooperstown today. We look at who's already in. And we go, who is the closest twin to Big Daddy? So, Adam, I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm, I, have an, I have two names down, but I have one name circled. Who is your twin for Rick? I had only one possible name, so I'm curious only what your one, second one Only one, two possible. Is. Okay. Yeah, my, my only uh, possible name was Jim Bunning. Okay. Who, uh, is that one of your two, just out of curiosity? It, 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 you know what? It was one of my three, and then I crossed them off. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. like, Russell's 214 and 191. Bunding is 224 and 184. The ERA, uh, 3.27 for Bunning, 3.37 for Russell, but it's a wash when you compare it to ERA. Uh, they both had, you know, 3,600, 3,700 innings, basically. Um, the big difference, of course, being that uh, Bunning was on the Hall of Fame ballot all the way through. He peaked at, this has got to be painful, 74.2% is what he got <laughs> on the writer's ballot. Uh, but he did eventually get in over the veterans uh, from the Veterans Committee. He was a nine-time All-Star. Um, just very similar numbers, but uh, you know, I don't think that Jim Bunning is seen as like an, an elite all-time great today, but you know, nobody ever questions his place in the hall of fame okay so i did have him down originally but this is what kind of steered me in a different direction mm -hmm. um jim bunning made nine all-star teams and mm -hmm. and i think when people look back um at russia they're, they're like well you know he was and, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about contemporaries but they're going to say you know when he was playing he was not one of the best right he was top five in cy young twice um, you know, he's never leading the league in anything. He only made uh, three all-star teams. He was just not a guy who we considered one of the best pitchers ever. Um, this guy's not a Hall of Famer. And, and Jim Bunning having nine all-star appearances, I feel like that argument doesn't fly for him. Makes nine all-star teams one of the better, you know, pitchers according to you know, whoever's voting, blah, blah, blah. So I went with players who one did not get in on the vote itself they had to be in by the veterans committee um lacked the all-star appearances but put up you know pretty good i guess one of them put up good advanced metrics the other maybe not so much but played very long careers accumulated good stats and finally got in by the veterans committee and, and my two players here is one of them um, kitty it is Okay, good, good. So so he's there. Um, and then I, I'm going to try not to butcher the last name because I feel like I'm so bad with just, and you know this because you listen to the podcast, <laughs> I can't pronounce anything. Um, but Bert Blylevin, is that how you pronounce the last name? Yeah. Blylevin? Okay. Blylevin. So I got Bert Blylevin and I got uh, Jim Cott. So Bert, let's stick with him first. Again, he was someone when I was a kid growing up, really trying to understand baseball history, I remember I couldn't understand why this guy wasn't getting voted in. I was like 287 wins. I was like well over 3,000 strikeouts. How is this almost 4,000 strikeouts? I was like, how is this guy got in? Um, you know, he eventually gets in. Two-time All-Star. Two-time top three Cy Young. Honestly, almost identical in terms of like people voting him for awards. You know, never a blank ink guy. He did have some World Series moments, which helps his case. But a guy who played forever, who waited forever to get in to the Hall of Fame. But if you look at his numbers now, especially war, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer to us today. But forever, people are kind of keeping him out. 
Um, and again, I think things like two all-star games, no Cy Youngs, that was, and again, people are, people would say, you know, you're either a Hall of Famer or you're not. He wasn't. That kind of kept him out. And then Jim Cott just got in a three-time all-star. Um, you know, for him, again, advanced metrics don't help him so much, but I think things like 16 gold gloves help him a lot. But again, this was someone who was never considered one of the best pitchers, I think, in the league but played for a very long time, 283 wins. ERA's a little higher than Rick's at uh, 3.45, but still put up all these numbers all the time. And again, 16 gold gloves always stuck out to me. Finally got in by a veterans committee. I think Rick is in this realm of a player who played for a good amount of time, pitched a number of innings. These guys pitched well into the 4,000 inning pitch. So Rick's a little behind him there, but was a pitcher who was dependable who was a great pitcher from advanced metrics. Again, that's a little more Burt than, than Jim, but still. And accumulated all these numbers, but were never considered like one of the top three, four, five pitchers in the game. So they kind of were shrugged off. That's kind of where I got those comparisons for Rick. Again, we can look at it where, you know, Burt has the advanced metrics thing go for him. Jim doesn't as much, but he has the wins going for him. You know, does having 70 more wins than Rick matter a lot? It definitely matters. Does it matter as much as maybe it should? I don't know. But those are kind of the two comps I came up with. Adam, your response to that. And were these even on your radar? And if they weren't, why not? So Bert Blylevin was not on my radar because I am from the sabermetrics school that believes he is one of the handful of greatest pitchers of all time. And I'm glad you brought him up, though, because like you said, two all-stars, no Cy Youngs, and it shows how a incredible pitcher can go under the radar like that. I do not think Rick Russell was as good as Burt Blylevin, but that's like saying, you know, I don't think he was as good as, you know, uh, I don't know, Roger Clemens. He, he just wasn't. <laughs> sure. But he was a lot better than people think. And uh, I'm also glad you brought up Jim Cott for uh, another reason. Uh, so Jim Cott, you mentioned that, by the advanced metrics, he doesn't look as good. He has 45.2 war as a pitcher on baseball reference. On fan graphs, he's a 71 war pitcher. Wow. So what is the difference here? He's he's like the, the biggest gap that I know of. That is the biggest gap I've ever heard by far. Yes. 75 and seven, uh, sorry, uh, 45 and 71. I can't wait for you to explain this to me. So please do. So the very short version of how baseball reference does pitching war is it starts with runs allowed, not earned runs allowed. It starts with runs allowed and it adjusts for the park and it adjusts for the defense that a player played in front of. So like any good defense, uh, the pitcher gives that value to, you know, and any like, uh, you know, Cal Ripken was a great fielder. So Mike Flanagan or whoever was pitching on that team gets some war taken away and Cal Ripken gets it in his fielding. Uh, and then there's also the park metrics and there's uh, some additional things like the, the strength of the, the teams that they faced and, and whatnot. Fangraphs goes a, a much more uh, basic FIP approach where they are only using the walks, strikeouts and home runs allowed. So that, that's how they uh, try to take all the, just the things that the pitcher can control. Whereas baseball reference is, you know, it's taking the runs that actually, you know, did cross the line and then making the adjustments for park and, and defense. So Jim Cott, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe he played in front of some wonderful defenders. Uh, so that is uh, part of what uh, takes some of his value away because it gets assigned to the defenders. Uh, but he did great by the FIP numbers. So he has a really, really high fan graphs number. So what does this look like for Russell? We mentioned he has 68.1 baseball reference war. Now keep in mind that fan graphs has this absolutely completely different system of assigning pitcher war. And what does Russell end up with? Instead of 68.1, he has 68.2. So these two wildly different ways of looking at Rick Russell, both scream hall of famer so that that's why i'm glad that you brought up jim cott do i think he was similar to jim cott jim cott pitched in relief a lot extended his yeah. career that way um i just don't think he was as dominant a pitcher yes he did pick up a lot more wins uh 
Russell is hurt by this four-year spell in the in the middle of his career where he had like hardly any value. You actually see a very similar um, gap in Louis Tiant's career, where right in the middle of his career uh, he fell off a cliff, but then came back. So Tiant's not in the Hall of Fame, but I might have thrown Tiant out there as a twin. Um, so yeah, that's I, I really uh, liked that tidbit about. Uh, Baseball Reference and Fangraphs War, how they both love Russell and how they have this enormous gap for Jim Cott. Yeah, no, that is by far the biggest gap I've seen. I, I will say I, and I think most of my listeners know this, I do usually go off reference over Fangraphs, but it is good to see. I mean, if both of them are indicating the same thing, it's less likely that there's an outlier or something off or, you know, uh, you know, sports reference or fan graphs have a, a special interest in a certain player that's really boosting him. The fact that it's both sites kind of point in the same direction, I think does go good for his case, but I'm definitely a, a sports reference person over here. Um, but interest, I mean, that's the biggest gap. I've never, can you think of a positional player that's a, a big gap like that? Or is, is this the biggest gap we're aware of right now? There are much smaller differences in position players because baseball catcher, reference catcher fan, though catcher though there's a pretty big that's right? true catcher framing is is yeah. included in fan graphs so Yadier Molina is probably a big one yes um, and on the pitching side too like Jack Morris does significantly better with fan graphs war um, probably still not enough to to be on the Hall of Fame level but uh, he's another example gotcha all right. Let's go to the main event. Let's go to court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And again, court is where we talk about, you know, the pros and cons of his career. And we've, we've touched on stuff throughout. Obviously, advanced metrics is a big part of today. But we've also, you know, talked about things like he played for some Cubs with some bad defense. Um, some other areas in which, you know, other than war, advanced metrics point us in this guy is a Hall of Fame caliber player. Adam, I'm going to turn over to you for a second. There's a whole list of contemporaries I want to go through in a little bit of how he compared to the players he was, you know, pitching against and, and who, you know, who was in the league in the 70s and 80s. But I do want to turn over to you, um, you know, outside of war, which again, we've talked about, like, when it comes to war, if you're just looking at that, that showing this guy, you know, is grouped with some of the best pitchers we've ever seen. But I know there's a number of other advanced metrics that point him in the direction of, yes, this guy was just that good. Outside of war, what other metrics out there really point that, hey, Rick Rushell, this guy's a Hall of Famer? Yeah, so FIP, which uh, the, the Fangraphs War is based on, among pitchers with as many innings as him since integration. So 35 innings, uh, 3,500 innings, he's 12th in FIP. You know, if you drop that all the way down to 2,500 innings, he's still 17th in the top 20. And again, this is since 1947. This is a lot of pitchers. There, there are things, you know, I don't want to dig into war here, but two of the things that do go into war, park factors. Okay. The Chicago uh, Wrigley Field was not a good place for pitchers uh, back then. So one of the things that really helps is 1977 season. The, the park rating is so high that it's just a couple percentage points off of what Coors Field was last year. So really, I mean, not Coors Field at its peak, but it, it Coors Field has not uh, been as much of a hitter's park lately, but it, it, it's almost on par with where Coors Field is now. So that's why, you know, a 20 and 10, 2.79 ERA pitcher can end up with 95, uh, 9.5 war. And then there's the defensive component. Like they're, they're, the number of runs below average that Rick Russell's defenses were worth. So the worst defense, pitchers that were hurt the most by their defense since 1900. Number one is another pitcher from that era with a great war, Phil Necro. He played for some really, really bad Braves teams. He was winning 20 while losing 20. Uh, 109 runs worse than average his defense was over the course of his career. Now, you're, any defense is going to cost you runs, but this is 109 runs worse than an average defense. Number two all-time, uh, Tom Candiotti, another uh, player uh, from the same time, you know, the great knuckleball. Well, he was a pretty good knuckleballer who pitched for some really, really lousy Indians teams in the 1980s. 
Larry Dierker, uh, Ned Garver, Wilbur Wood, a pitcher who had four straight 21 seasons in the mm-hmm. 70s. And uh, tied with Wilbur Wood at fifth is Rick Rushell with 70 runs uh, that his defense cost him beyond the average defense. So to compare, Jim Palmer's defenses saved him 143 runs in his career. So that's like 143 and seven. So we're talking like over a 20 war swing just from the defenses behind them. And does that match the eye test? Well, let's use gold gloves. So uh, Russell didn't play with a gold glove defender until uh, Ryan Sandberg was like a, a first year play. The first time Sandberg won it, basically. And Russell was 34 years old when he first played with a gold glove winner. Wow. By that time, Jim Palmer had played with 34 gold glove winners. That's 10 from Brooks Robinson, nine from Mark Belanger, seven from Paul Blair, four from Bobby Gritch, three from Davey Johnson, one by Luis Aparicio. And that does not even count the four that Palmer won himself because uh, he was helping his own cause there. Uh, so, you know, 34 gold gloves to, to one is, is really stark. And I think it nicely lines up with that 143 runs saved versus 70 runs cost, you know. Jim Palmer was not, you know, playing with Dave Kingman out there in left field. It was a very different situation. No, that all, I mean, again, I'm a Cubs fan. I grew up listening. My, my dad grew up in the, in the 70s watching Cubs baseball, and he told me some pretty horrifying stuff. Now, he doesn't know it was as bad as that. I don't think I'm going to tell him that. I don't want to relive history and relive the past. But, yes, I, I'm very aware of those. Those 70s Cubs teams were pretty poor. I don't know if I I considered how poor on defense they were. And the thing that stuck out for me, because again, you know, Russia was winning, winning, you know, 16, 17, that one season, 20 wins when the Cubs were barely winning 80 wins. He was about a fourth of the decisions there that were, you know, 25% of them were because of him. The thing that stuck out to me was how many, how many games he had a quality start um, and he had a no decision. I, I came across something, you know, it's over his career, 158 quality starts um, that were either losses or no decisions. And during those, he was 0 and 81. So he lost 81 of those quality starts with a 2.45 ERA. Um, I, I forgot what it said, but basically it was like, that's like one of the worst situations in terms of having a quality start and not having a decision. And again, this ties into the defense. It ties into the quality of the bats. And he just did not get support. You throw him on another team. You know, again, we can play what ifs all day, but he's probably picking up an additional 30, 40, maybe wins. And now we're talking about a guy with 250, maybe 260 wins, which again, with with Jim Cott, that, you know, I think having 280 wins helped. Bert's a whole different story, but playing for those teams does have an impact. He, he led the league in losses one year, I think, with the Cubs with an under four ERA. I wonder how many times that's happened. But I think that all has to be considered. But I'll be honest, Adam, like, I'm a Cubs fan, so I can consider this. But feeling bad for pitchers or looking at pitchers' careers differently just because they play with a bad team, I don't know if that's what a casual fan or even a voter does. I mean, do you think that's, I don't want to say realistic, but do you think it's fair to be to tell voters like, hey, you got to look at every pitcher, even the ones on bad teams, because there's gems hiding on all of these teams? Like, where do we draw the line here? That that is a great question. I, I think back to our tennis conversation, and we were talking about like, is the fact that his management didn't appreciate him enough to put him in the lineup uh work in his favor? Like, can you get in the hall of fame based on walks? Well. Russell is different. It's like a, it's like a luck thing. Uh, he, yeah, it's, it's I found one site. Worst based, case scenario. Like yeah. everything's like the worst case scenario. One site, uh, baseballegg.com has uh, a couple quirky stats here. I like them. They call them <laughs> Morris wins and DeGrom losses. So a Morris win is where they allowed five plus earned runs, but still got the win. And uh, Russell had eight of those. And then there's DeGrom losses where he went seven or more innings and allowed one earned run or less and didn't get a win. And compared to the eight Morris wins, he has 31 DeGrom losses. So uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, way of uh, showing his luck. And 
And you know, not only that, like we talked about the defense, we talked about the park factor. He also had strange luck where even though he had this bad defense, it didn't translate to earn unearned runs because the, the defense wasn't making errors because they weren't getting at anything. So uh, another researcher a while back uh, did a an ERA plus uh, comparison where instead of ERA plus, it's like expected runs allowed plus uh, and, and found that uh, based on the defense that played behind him, his 114 ERA plus really plays more like a 120 ERA plus, which is substantially better. Like it's not like hitters where 120 is, you know, it's a little bit better than 114. No, this is like a, a huge difference for pitchers. So the number of pitchers with a 120 ERA plus in 3,500 innings is only 21. There's only 21 in history. And the only two outside the Hall of Fame are Roger Clemens and Will White. And who's Will White? He's like, what, what kind of pitcher are we talking about here? He had 75 complete games and 680 innings pitched in 1879. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. I have to go all the way back there. No, and 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 this might be a little too too geeky, but I'm just curious. Do you are you aware of anything where you could like again? We're talking about Rick is like almost worst case scenario, bad luck. And, and again, everyone, anyone listening, you're a fan of your own baseball team. I'm sure you've had seasons where you're like, this pitcher is better than everyone you know thinks he is. He just never gets run support. I mean, I hear that all the time, like. He never got run support. That's why, you know, his win total wasn't up. That's why you don't hear about him much. Um, he just doesn't get the support. DeGrom's the one I think of actually all the time just because, you know, he's win the Cy Young now with like 11, 12 wins because of those DeGrom, you know, situations where he's, if he lets up one run, he has a chance of losing. Um, but I feel like everyone kind of has that. And Rick just seemed like throughout his career, whether it be with the Cubs or with the Pirates, he was continuously just running into this throughout his entire career. Is there anything where you could drop Rick into another, again, you talked about Jim Palmer earlier, of course, a hall of famer, pancake Palmer. Could you drop him into his just shoes, replicate like his ability to pitch and, and how, like, how would he, if he had that defense behind him, his whole career, how does his career play out? Is there anything in existence that can sort of do something like that? Almost like a, hey, drop in a, and again, I know advanced stats try to do that, but is there anything you could just drop him in and churn out this many more wins or this, anything like that exists on the market today? Because if anyone knows, it's going to be you. Well, the baseball reference pitching war actually like as it's applying all of those. It's uh, doing that? Those constants and, and, and modifications. So he Russell allowed 3.79 runs per nine innings. So that includes the unearned runs. Sounds high. Don't, don't be scared off by it. Every pitcher allows unearned runs that happens. So what it does is it takes the opponents he faced, the parks he pitched in the defenses that he played in front of and says that an average pitcher would have allowed 4.65 runs per nine innings. So 4.65 and 3.79 decent size difference there and then you expand that over 3500 innings and that's that's why his war is so high yeah whereas like jim palmer uh he allowed 3.18 runs per nine innings but an average pitcher in his scenario would be expected to uh have 3.78 so it's a it's a similar difference but like a 3.78 is what the average pitcher would be expected to allow in Palmer's shoes, but it's 4.65 in Russell's. So that, that explains like just evening the playing field. That's, that's what we're talking about now in terms of like how many wins he would have had. Yeah. I'm almost like, like wins and like what I was thinking more Adam, when I asked that question is like, I'm curious, like, again, the big thing, all-star appearances, Cy Young's again, there's no way you can kind of predict this. But it, again, if you if we were looking about all that back then, I'm just curious, like, are we looking at a seven, eight time all star with a bunch of top five Cy Youngs and a Cy Young or two? Like, that's the difference between him being a slam dunk Hall of Fame guy and us having this conversation right now about a guy that got two votes back in 1997. Yeah, I, I saw one report. I wish I, I grabbed the link, but it, it estimated win loss percentage based on the number of runs allowed and, and the team success. 
and it predicted, I forget the exact numbers, but it, it added about 20 wins and subtracted about 20 losses, okay. which, you know, brings him into the, like the two thirties and, and one seventy type range, which all of a sudden looks like a, a is a very different winning sure. percentage. If you've got that huge of a swing. Sure. And like, right. even if you assume that Russell, if like, you don't believe the defense thing, sure. Right? I don't, I don't believe it at all. There's no way just say that he pitched in front of an average defense. Yep. So if you do that, he's still a 61 war pitcher. And where does that bring us? Jim Bunning was 59.5. So right around there. So you don't even need to make the excuses. I feel like like the, the best way to, to make the case for Rick Russell is to make excuses for him. And that, that doesn't <laughs> feel great, uh, but it's so true. Like the parks were against him. The defense was against him. The fact that the defense wasn't making errors <laughs> meant that his ERA was against him, which means his ERA plus is against him. It just keeps going on. <laughs> yeah. And, and that might kind of go into this, of, of just the perception of his career again, because again, we didn't, the average baseball fan, I mean, wasn't thinking about this stuff. And again, years later, now we're examining it just like we did with Gene Tennis. But you look back at his career at the 70s, he pitched, you know, 1972, 1991. So he pitched for most of the 70s and the 80s. And, and this is what I think, out of anything, I think hurts him the most. And I'm curious how you look at it now as we have all these, you know, numbers we can look at, as we can look back through a new lens. But you know, you ask someone who who are the best pitchers in the 70s? Who are the best pitchers in the 80s? This is when Rick was was pitching. He again, he made three all-star teams. He was on everyone's radar. He was the ace for the Cubs for a while. And I looked at just like the numbers, both standard and advanced. And like in the 70s, he was 26 in wins during the 70s. He was 16th in ERA plus of pitchers that pitched over a thousand innings in the 70s. And he was 10th in war in the 70s. So Top 10 in war, which again is his calling card here. 26 in wins, 16th in ERA plus. If we look at the 80s, when he, you know, age 30 something through 40, 12th in ERA plus with more than a thousand innings, 19th in war and 39th in wins. So again, he's he's not, you know, top five in anything like this, but he's in the picture in both decades. But then when I actually pull like the names out of, of, you know, who, when I think of the seventies, like, who am I thinking of? And I listed nine guys who I would say are, are better than, than Rick before I even start to have a debate between some of the other guys. So like I went, you know, Tom Seaver, Phil Necro, Gaylord Perry, Burt, Palmer, Jenkins, Carlton, Ryan, even you talked about Wilbur Wood earlier. If you look at the seventies, that guy tore up the 70s. It didn't have the length, but he tore up the 70s. So I have all nine of those guys listed of, I think they're a better pitcher in the 70s. And then we get to, okay, now let's bring Rick in the conversation with the Don Suttons, Catfish Hunters, Tommy Johns, Jim Cotts, Vita Blue. He's in this whole group just to fight for that number 10 spot. And then if you look at the 80s, it's kind of a same conversation of there's these elite pitchers that just pop in your mind. And, and then and then you get in this conversation of who's fighting for eight, nine, 10 in the decade. So I have two different decades here he pitched in. And Adam, you know, you, I know you listen to my, my podcast and like I have this thing where, you know, if you're top five at your position in a decade, I feel like you have a really good shot at the Hall of Fame. Doesn't mean you're guaranteed to me, but you have a great shot. And I'm looking at two different decades here and I'm having to really fight him to get in that top 10. So I guess maybe start in the seventies, but then we're worked to the eighties. Like, is there an argument that he's a, a, a top six, seven pitcher in the, in, in these different decades? Is he better than Fergie Jenkins? As we look at it now, Nolan Ryan, as we look at it now, as much as someone's going to crucify us for even saying that, what is your take? If we're looking at the seventies, probably his peak years, where do you have him ranking in that decade? So the first thing I'll say is that uh, expecting top five of a pitcher is very different from except expecting That's top true. five of That's any other true. position. That's true. There's a lot of pitchers on a team. Pitchers take up about a third of the the war that is uh, allotted to to teams. I don't have him ahead of Seaver, Lyle Levin, Carlton, Ryan. 
Yeah, people might be surprised to find out that uh, Rick Russell has a better winning percentage and ERA plus than Nolan Ryan. Um, Jenkins, no. I think he's in Sutton's ballpark. I, I like Sutton, though. I think that because of these uh, adjustments we're making, I think you could make the case that he's in Palmer's ballpark. Wilberwood was four seasons. He did not age uh, well at all. I, I I can't put him on the same level. Okay. So I, I named six that, well, five that are certainly better. A couple more that uh, you can make the case are better. Vita Blue, I, I'm not there. Steve Rogers, I'm not there. Ron Goodry, I'm not there. I, I think that Rick is solidly in in the five to 10 range. Okay. But uh, what about like against Tommy John or Catfish Hunter? Catfish Hunter is uh, one that, Cause that's not a war guy. Catfish Hunter is not a war guy whatsoever. He's not a war guy. He's a Jim Cott. You know, a lot of his value was uh, handed over to the defenders who played with, him. although it's not just that his ERA plus is very mediocre. He had a few great seasons and uh, the rest of his career was, was not great. So I think that Russell had a more valuable career. It was not as, as famous, not as flashy, didn't get the the World Series wins and whatnot. But if we're talking about value that these players provided, I think Rick Russell is way up there. Um, so I guess, yeah, it, it comes down to, uh, are we talking about fame or value? If it's value, then Rick Russell is pushing into the top five. If it's fame, we know that he's nowhere close. So, so that gets us to, it's called the hall of fame, right? So what, so again, Adam, is it, is it like today? Like I know how you look at it, but I'm just thinking voters in general. And I know we're getting at the end. We talk about what do we think the voters and all of that, but do you feel like there's a turn in voters today or younger voters coming in of looking more at the value over the fame? Cause I think it's a, a beautiful combination of both. But I feel like you say, okay, this guy was super valuable, but he doesn't have the accolades that all these other valuable people have. He's kind of an outlier in that other than maybe, again, we talked earlier, the Jim Cots, the, but Jim Cott has 16 gold gloves. You can at least point to accolades and you, you could say the same about Bert, but again, Bert's a little higher level. Um, and he has some career numbers that are more the counting stats, the 287, the 3,800 strikeouts. So when it's between value and fame, where's the balance at today? I'm glad you said this as well. This is a quote <laughs> from John Thorne that I brought up, I believe in the- You in the did, it, you, you got to bring it up again. John, uh, John Thorne, the official historian of, of Major League Baseball uh, wrote in, I think it was an article about uh, Gil Hodges where he wrote, were you famous or given later scholarship, should you have been? And Rick Russell is clearly a given later scholarship, should you have been case, as was Gene Tennis. You know, Jim Cott, was he famous? No. Given later scholarship, should he have been? No. So I would say like, maybe that one, I, I don't agree with as much. Was Gil Hodges famous? Yes. I'm kind of surprised it took him a long time to get in. Uh, you know, Steve Garvey is one who people say he was famous, but, you know, in, in the time that he was famous, he was not famous enough to get into the Hall of Fame. So given this later scholarship, should we consider it? I don't think so. But I think with uh, Rick Russell or even a, a Gene Tennis, even though he, I feel like Gene Tennis is pushing every possible boundary. Rick Russell, I think, like, this is a pitcher with <laughs> 214, 17 wins or whatever it was, 3.37 ERA, 2,000 strikeouts, 3,500 innings. That's typically a Hall of Famer. Yeah. There aren't too many out there that are not a Hall of Famer. So one last thing I wanted to bring up before we get to, to final verdict, uh, just your, your take. So I don't know if this hurts him or not. And again, I was not, by the time he was finishing up his career, I was about two years old. So I don't, I, I didn't get to see him pitch live. I, I, I hear stories. I watch, you know, of course, film. I, I've seen him pitch before. But I can read plenty, and I have seen him pitch on on YouTube and other you know avenues. And he's called Big Daddy. He does not look like a professional athlete as much. He's just he looks maybe like a normal guy. Doesn't throw high heat, not flashy. Uh, kind of just you know goes to work, does his job. I don't want to say eats innings because I think he's better than that. But pitched a lot of innings, 
but was by no means flashy. He was not striking people out, um, you know, at a high clip. He just got over 2,000 strikeouts, but by no means was he a strikeout pitcher. Do you think his kind of like, <laughs> I don't want to shame anyone, his lumpy body or his non-athletic appearance, even though he was kind of kind of athletic because as a pitcher, I, he was pretty good defensively. And for what he was able to do, I think he was a pretty good athlete, but just didn't maybe look the part, didn't throw the high heat. Does that hurt him at all? The the not high strikeout total, the not, you know, maybe being intimidating or, you know, having a, a 95 mile per hour fastball. Do you think that hurts him in any, in any regard? Have you seen the Sports Illustrated cover? I don't think so. Where I forget the caption that they. I might they, need to see it. What uh, is it? All right. So this is when he was in the Giants days. Uh, let me bring it up here. See what the, the exact caption is. A true giant. And they have him in a very unflattering pose. I mean, the way he he pitched to, he, he just stuck his butt out there. And, you know, he's he's got that. It, he like kind of clenches his, his face a little bit. It's not a great look. And they, they caption it with a true giant, Rick Russell, all 240 or more pounds of him is 12 and three and has San Francisco on top. And you know, that's, that's, that's not cool. Come on. I mean, Rick Russell was a big dude. He was, uh, yeah. his whole family was, was big dudes. His brother was a big dude. They're just, they were big guys. And you know, he was very athletic. He won two gold gloves, 36 and 38 years old when he won those. Yeah. Pinch ran multiple times, 17 times. He's 10th all time in pitcher putouts, oh. which means, you know, he's given up a lot of ground balls, but he's getting his ass over there at first base to cover and, uh, you know, make the put out. Uh, yeah, I, I found that one. It's just, it's just these quirky things about Rick Russell that I find that, you know, what, 10th all time in putouts. Who knew? That's that's like quite a number. So, but it makes sense. You know, batters are drilling the ball into the ground. He's running over to first to cover. And, you know, you can't do that if you're, you know, this uh, out of shape dude. I think he was just a large guy. That's just, there's, there's some people, uh, maybe I can relate, who will just never be small. And Rick Russell is just a big dude. And even when he's athletic, he's a big dude. Yeah. Do you think that hurts his case at all, though? I just think nobody looked at him and they didn't see, you know, just to go to Jim Palmer again. You know, Jim Palmer, you know, he's going to make the, the cover of a, a magazine no matter what. Rick Russell, you know, he's pitching for a crappy team. He's, you know, going 17 and 15. Uh, even though he's one of the best pitchers in the league, it's just not flashy. And it's all these little things that add up that like hold his legacy back. And, you know, I, I'm here to, to, <laughs> to make sure that people know just how damn good Rick Russell was, you know, he had everything going against him and I'm sure he would never like talk about it like that. He probably doesn't sit there going, God damn it. If only Dave Kingman wasn't my left fielder, he, you know, I'm sure he's, he's very appreciative of his career, but you know, I, I think that he, he could use other people uh, sharing this information about him and showing, you know, it, look at the context he was in and look at, you know, everything around him. And man, he, he was just as valuable, even if he's not as famous as some of these other hall of famers. All right. So Adam, you know, I'm going to ask you here. There's two questions at the end for final verdict. One, would you, you know, vote him in? Do you think he belongs in the Hall of Fame? And then the second question is, do you think he'll ever get into Cooperstown? I would vote for him. Like when you're looking at the best pitchers outside of the Hall of Fame, the obvious ones are Clemens and Schilling, but they're out for other reasons. And then who's next? I think Rick is in that conversation. Like, I think it's Rick. I think it's Kevin Brown who has his own issues. I think uh, Louis Tiant is right up there. And I would throw Johan Santana near the top of that list mm. as well, if we're going for a peak guy over the long career. But in terms of like the long career guys, uh, I think it's Russell and Tiant who are right up there. So yes, I would absolutely vote for him. And uh Will he ever get, how do you, how do you phrase that these days? Will he ever get in, in yeah. my lifetime? Yeah. It's, it's like, 
I gotta, I think Adam, I think I gotta work on uh, actually having a time frame here because I think I make something up every time. Let's say next 50 years. That's probably what I should make it. Do you think he gets elected to the Hall of Fame in the next 50 years? I gotta start capping this because, yeah, 200 years from now, I think everyone will probably be in something, but who knows if it will exist. But right. let's say next 50 years. Do you think Rick Rushell is in the Hall of Fame? Next 50. So do I think Rick Rushell will get in in his lifetime, which he's 73 years old and he's just not on the radar yet. And I hate that that's, you know, it's not looking good for that. Will he get in in 50 years? I think he will. I think Mm. the numbers are going to be too much to ignore at some point. You know, we will have, you know, Kevin Brown eventually go in because he's got this superior ERA plus. We're going to have Louis Tiant go in. And, you know, it's really just going to be Rick Rushell standing there uh, among the pitchers. And I think that he will get in. It's going to take probably at least a couple decades, but uh, I do see it happening. And I hope to have <laughs> some part of it. And, and Adam, I think you would know better than anyone. I couldn't find it, but correct me if I'm wrong. He's never even made the ballot for a veterans committee, correct? Or has he? No, he's, I don't think he's ever been in the discussion to be. He's never been brought up in the room. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if he's been in, brought up at all. You know, they're too busy talking about, you know, the, you know, they want to put Albert Bell on there for like the fourth time or something. Um, last question before I answer, who gets in first, Lou Whitaker or Rick Rischel? Lou Whitaker. Okay. I think Lou Whitaker, right. we're talking less than 10 years. Okay. Okay, I believe Lou Whitaker is a Hall of Famer. Um, okay, so for me, do, do I think uh, he should be a Hall of Famer? I, I'll say this to start. Uh, if you would have asked me a year ago, um, I would have given you a, a very quick no, like an immediate no, actually. Um, just from every, again, a Cubs, as a Cubs fan, I know the most about Cubs history from the very beginning to today. I was very aware of the teams he played for. Um, and I know they stunk and I know he was our best player, but when your team's that bad for an extended period of time, and that's when he's on your team, you just, you don't think about those players as much. Looking at it as I, you know, have learned more and more uh, about baseball history, um, as I've talked to more and more people, as I've dug more and more deeper into advanced metrics, this question gets a lot harder, a lot harder than I would have ever would have thought. I am, I'm still a no for him. I, I still am a no for him. I will say I'm closer than I've ever been, but there's a couple things for me. Like I am someone who does look a lot when it comes to all sports, not just baseball of what the voters of the time when he was playing, how they voted of who the best players were. And I know everyone has biases. They can be wrong, all that stuff, but I do take a strong look at that. And then I also look, you know, when it became election time, how they did. And in the fact that again, he was top five in Cy Young twice um, you know, he only made three all-star teams. And then I even looked at, like, again, I said he had very limited black ink. I think he, he led the league in, in whip actually once we didn't really talk about that, but he didn't walk many people, but like the lead in whip once, um, I think complete games once shutouts once. But when I was looking at like even top five, he was a top five ERA plus three seasons. The best he ever did was second, um, top five in war, even like his most, best category we know he led it in 1977 he had six seasons where he was top five war for a pitcher which is probably his highlight but I guess for me his absolute peak wasn't good enough for me to to say he's in I think his career numbers are are right there in terms of again the war is extremely high the wins is right close there strikeouts is a little lower but I don't really care about that as much as maybe some people do but when I do a mix of that advanced metrics and the accolades, he, he falls short on um, the accolades for me. Cause I have a pretty even split there. I think, I think some people might skew more toward just look at the numbers, just look at advanced metrics. I try to do a little bit of everything. And because I don't have the eye test, cause I didn't really get to see him play. I lean a little more heavily on what the voters that saw him play, how they voted, even if maybe they didn't have all the information we have today, still lean a little heavy that. So I say, no. Do I think he'll get in in the next, now my category is 50 years. I think he will too, Adam. I, I, I do because I think, and again, I think it'll be like 30 or 40 years from now when all the voters are growing up with all these advanced metrics. 
But as you've painted very well today, from an advanced metric standpoint, Rick's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's either a huge outlier or he's in the same grouping as a bunch of Hall of Fame pitchers. And I tend to think, even when there's an outlier, I tend to think, okay, there's a reason he's in that discussion. And he's in the discussion across a number of different categories here. So in the next 50 years, I do think he gets in. But I, I honestly think, Adam, any all the voters 50 and older kind of got to be out. And it's a new generation that's growing up with this, that's really looking at these kind of numbers. I think it's going to be hard in 30 years not to get someone with a, you know, almost 70 war in the Hall of Fame. Unless they completely invent a new metric down the road that paints him in a bad picture, I can't imagine 30 years from now he's not in. And maybe by that point, I've turned a page and I care even more about that. And I'm saying yes too. But right now, I'm a no. Next 50 years, I think he gets in. All right. I, I, I can accept a no on Gene Tennis. I, I, I'm right here though. On Rick Russell, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm right on this one. So uh, I'll work on uh, getting you over to the other side. That is that is fair enough. And and Adam, I would have to go back, but we were talking before, like I told you before the podcast, like this might be the one where we don't see eye to eye on everything. And I think this might be the first time we we might disagree on who we're voting for. I think we might have disagreed before what we think happens, but I think you and I have almost always been on the same page. Wait, no, wait. Did you say tennis should be in? I can't remember. I slightly leaned towards yes and okay. ended up picking a yes. So all right, then we've disagreed in the last two. Look at us. We're gonna have to find a. We're gonna we're gonna have to get a yes in here soon, or we're gonna just not be. We're not gonna be friends anymore. We're disagreeing on everything. But um, I, I appreciate again. Your viewpoint on this is why I want you on. You're looking at it at a slightly different lens than me. And again, I know you dig into these numbers even more than I do. And I fully trust your opinion. So trust me, this will be someone I continuously think about as time goes on. If we ever need to do a Rick Rushell 2.0 because I've turned a new leaf, you'll be the guy to bring on. Um, as always, Adam, super, super fun. Anything you want to plug here at the end? Uh, you know, the day job, uh, I'm lucky I get to work on baseball reference and stat heads. So uh, if, if anyone uh, wants to, you know, talk to me about how they're using those or how they can use those, uh, I'm on Twitter at baseball twit, my DMs are open. I love talking about how you're using those and want to make them as, as good as possible for, for anybody who's, if you're listening to this show, the, those tools are made for you. So they really are. I, I mean, I, I, I'll just say I use Stathead every, every single day. I couldn't, I couldn't do this show without it. Um, Adam, as always, thank you very much. Can't wait to have you on once again in the future and enjoy watching baseball tomorrow. Yeah, we will do this again. I love these. Thanks so much for having me again. All right. I want to thank Adam again for coming on the podcast. Talk about Rick Russell. That is all we have for you today. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're enjoying baseball. I know I am. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Pod of Fame. And if you've done all that, you've done your homework. So we will see you next Monday. Have a great week. And the world.